Well, just to say thank you to everybody who's really uh, encouraged us, helped us this morning, just hear God together. Uh, I'm going to be picking up on some of those things as we go through what is almost our last um, look at the book of Acts together in our series from neighborhoods to nations. We're looking at the explosive growth of the, the, the church, the early church, the spread of the gospel out from Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And as I say, really be picking up on some of the things that have been wonderfully exemplified and that have helped us this morning. A key figure, if you're joining us, kind of if you're maybe here for the first time, you might kind of think, oh, um, what have I missed? Well, really just to give you some context right now, the Apostle Paul has been quite a key figure in the second half of this book that we've been going through. And he has now been uh, arrested um, and he is about to be sent to, to, to Rome. And the, the Roman officials that uh, have responsibility for him right now are scratching their heads in terms of what to write, in terms of what the Jewish people or the Jewish leaders are accusing him of. It's a little bit complicated. They can't quite work it out. So they're trying to figure that out. And they've got this guy, this Jewish king called Agrippa, to come along and listen to Paul and see if they can work out what they're going to write when they send him off to be tried. So we're picking it up in Acts 26, and we'll start, I think, in verse 1. We'll read um, a section from Acts 26, and then we'll draw some things out from it. And I think that hopefully that would help put in context some of the things that we've heard already this morning. So Agrippa said to Paul, so remember, he's the, uh, he's the Jewish um, king. He hasn't got matters of, of power particularly, but certainly in religious matters, he's aware of those things. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And we'll come back to that word, it's a key word. So Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all of the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King." Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem, and not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried, and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging, my raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me 
and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying to small and great, saying nothing about what the... Prophets and Moses, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now we're coming to the last, just the last paragraph or so. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, are you out of your mind? Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whatever, short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So Paul is making a defense here. And that word defense, I said we'd come back to. It's apologia. It's a, it means make a defense. Defend, de, defend in terms of presenting the truth. Um, against lies that perhaps had been said or misunderstandings that had happened. Paul is making a defense. And in one sense, he's making his defense in, in terms of uh, the case that's been brought against him. That's kind of on the surface level. But really what is going on is he's making a defense of the Christian faith. He's saying, this is why it's true. I'm here today because of what I've said. And what I'm saying is true. He's defending not just himself, and probably that's the last thing on his mind in some ways. He's defending the truth of the Christian faith. He's making an apologia. It's a very good word, apologetics from. He's defending the truth of the Christian faith. And what encourages me that that is the case is that Agrippa realizes what's going on. And he says to Paul, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He kind of feels what's going on. He feels the force. There's something spiritual that's stirring as Paul is sharing. He feels something is happening. And he's kind of, it's quite hard to know really. Maybe he's laughing it off. Maybe he's beginning to feel uncomfortable. Maybe God is beginning to press in as Paul speaks. And he's just trying to push it away a little bit, not knowing quite what to do with it. And Paul, of course, he says basically, yes. But not only you, but everybody. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, a follower of Jesus, a believer of Jesus. This is kind of what Paul is trying to do here in his uh, defense. It's key for the whole passage, well, I feel for us this morning anyway, understanding what, uh, what God has for us. And so I, it got me thinking really, what if I had like 20 minutes to persuade you to become a Christian? 
such as I am, such as many are here? What if I had 20 minutes to, to persuade you, if you are a Christian, that, you're, that you've made a, a good and right and tr- true choice in trusting in Jesus and believing in him? What if I had 20 minutes or so to do that? How would I do it? Well, I'm not really very good at doing that sort of thing. So it made me press into this passage and say, what does Paul do? What are some of the principles that I can learn, that maybe I can help communicate, that maybe I can even put into practice right now to try and persuade you that actually Jesus lived and died and rose again and is who he said he was, and you can trust in him that even though you die, you will live. What could I do in a few minutes? So we're going to just draw out maybe three or four kind of points here that as I learn, I hope you'll learn as well, and also I want to put them into into practice. The first principle is that Paul, he looked for an open door. He didn't just kind of barge in and start blurting out stuff, and we have this expression, don't we, kind of bashing someone over the head with the Bible. That's not what he was doing. He looked for an open door for the gospel. He looked for an opportunity to share Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. There's an open door. He had an opportunity to share, a context within which to share. And then Paul begins to make his defense. I won't kind of linger long on this because it's pretty much common sense, isn't it? It's very difficult to communicate to someone that doesn't want to hear, that's kind of got their fingers in the ears or is shouting kind of back at you or is saying, stop it, I don't want to hear. It's very difficult to communicate in that sense. But actually Paul here looked for and took an opportunity when he did have the people who were, uh, were interested. And it, it thought to me that this is probably a reason, I'm reasonably sure bet that I've got an opportunity here to communicate to you the gospel. It's probably what you were expecting. It's probably why you're sitting here, even if kind of you might be thinking, how long is this chap going to take? I thought, here's an opportunity at least. It's an obvious opportunity, but many times in our life it's not quite that obvious. And so we need to look for and pray for opportunities to share the gospel, the good news with people, and to to help them see that Jesus is someone they can put their trust in too. The apostle Paul, uh, Peter, knew this when he said, In your hearts, honour Christ as Lord, as holy. Honour Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defence, an apologia, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect. He said, like the Apostle Paul, live out your life having in your heart decided to follow Jesus, come what may, no matter what, to put Jesus first. And he says, as you do that, doors will open, opportunities will open, like they did for the Apostle Paul. He followed Jesus, he did what Jesus had told him to do, and here he finds himself kind of in the courts of power, as it were, with permission to speak, make it, to make a defense of the Christian faith, of his belief in Jesus and who he said that he was. So the encouragement here is simply to to put Jesus first in our hearts, to to, to acknowledge him as Lord and to live it out. And there'll be opportunities where people are actually willing to listen. They might even ask, why do you do that? Why are you doing the things that you do? So here's the first thing, but I thought this is, I mean, I'm in an obvious setting here, so I think I can press on. But often it's, and that doesn't mean there aren't times you don't need to kind of, to, to, to push into particular situations, particularly situations of justice where harm is being done to people and so on. And, and you, you will know the kind of the, the, the different contexts and the friendships we're in. But nevertheless, let's look for and pray for open doors as we live out the truth of who Jesus is and live radically different lives. So that was the first thing. He, uh, he looked for and went through an open door. 
people who were receptive to hear what he had to say, at least initially. The second thing is here, once he has the floor, what does Paul say? Well, he starts his defense by establishing common ground. It seems to me, as I read through the whole of this passage, he does it a few times. He's establishing touch points and contexts in which to communicate the gospel. He's not saying something that's going to be meaningless to his listeners, using kind of jargon words and things that don't make much sense. And we've heard it even this morning in different kind of illustrations of the the gospel in that wonderful picture of a broken pot. We can, many of us can relate to that, the feeling of being broken. And in the gospel, the good news is we believe in Jesus. There's a hope to be put back together again. It kind of makes us understand. It's a bit of an insight, a bit of common ground, a bit of a, a, a context in which to understand the gospel. Jesus did it all the time. He was all the time using different illustrations and situations that he and his disciples were in. And he was saying, hey, this is, this is a bit like the kingdom of God. This helps you understand what God is doing. So Paul is doing that with, uh, with Agrippa, certainly, in terms of saying you're familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. So here's the context in which I'm going to make my defense. You already understand these things. I'm not speaking into a vacuum. What are the talking points, the, the worldview, the issues, the beliefs? He talks about, what you, I know that you know what, what the Scriptures say. I know you believe in the promises of God. Here's a context in which I'm going to make my defense, some things which you already understand and can relate to. But of course, that was true for Agrippa, but not often so much true for us, and probably not true for you. You probably may, maybe you don't have a great understanding, or certainly not belief in the promises that God has made. So what would be common ground? Well, Paul found that when he went into Gentile context, that is non-Jew context, Greek uh, situations, they had a radically different worldview. So he looked again for connection points. He looked for contexts in which he could explain aspects of the gospel, that it would make sense to them. It wouldn't be jargon and kind of nonsense that that people uh, interpreted him as saying, although, of course, um, with the best way in the world, some did. So it makes me think, what is, what is common ground for us? What perhaps might be common ground? Paul says that God has not left himself without excuse. He says that you can look all over this wonderful world that God has made and you will see time and time again connection points and context which, which people will relate to, which you may very well be able to relate to and help you point you to God, point you to the gospel, help you understand something about what God is doing in the gospel and what is offered in the gospel. There are many of these connection points. And I thought I'd just share one thing that uh, was important to me as I heard the gospel. And that is morality. That there's a right and there's a wrong. And really at this moment, many of us are aware, we look at our television screens and read the news, whether it's the indiscriminate bombing of cities or whether it's an individual who's killing people for just apparently no reason. It's, it's disturbing, it's upsetting. It's, it's not just that someone has a different preference to us. It's that this is wrong at a, the deep level of what reality actually is. It's not preference. There's something very wrong when people do these things. And perhaps it's alerted you to the fact that, that there is actually an objective right and wrong. And that's what I began to discover Years and years ago, before I was a Christian, I began to realize, you know what, I think there is an objective right and wrong. It's not my preference. It's not your preference. There is a 
a, a transcend, there's, a, there's a reality underneath it all. What is that reality? And I began to think, you know what? I think that reality is God. I think goodness is grounded in God, and I think evil is as bad as it is because it's against God who is good. And as I thought about it, I thought, I can't think of anything deeper than that. And it pointed me to God. And perhaps you're realizing, perhaps evil has been done against you, and you know firsthand this is wrong. This is against the fabric of reality. It's not just it's hurting me. This is deeply wrong. And maybe it's pointing you to God. And in that case, maybe we have some common ground to begin to talk about the gospel of forgiveness of sins because perhaps we have something else that we have in common. When I realized it wasn't just out there that people were doing things that were wrong. It was in here. I had done things that were wrong. Many of us would relate to that. Maybe you can begin to relate to that, even if you're not a Christian. Well, if you can, we have some common ground. We can begin to talk about the gospel because the gospel is directly addressing that issue. The Bible calls it sin. It's missing the mark. I don't know if you've watched any of the tennis recently. And uh, the, basically, the lines, the lines person's job, they, they have to shout out a couple of things, don't they? Is it out or fault or something like that? Is that that's basically the gist of it. And I know, I feel for them because they're like that the whole time. They're looking at this line and how far out does the ball have to be for it to be out? A few a millimeters, a few millimeters, inches. How far out does the ball have to be? Do they call out, oh, 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 my. They don't, they go, out, fault. It's either fault or it's not. It's in or it's out. And of course, there are degrees of getting things wrong. There are degrees of missing the mark. But God's standard is perfection. It's perfection or it's out, fault. And if you are at fault, according to God's standard, you are in, you are in trouble, you have a problem. And I began to realize I had a problem. I began to realize what morality was. There was a right and a wrong. I thought, I've got a problem. The gospel began to make sense. I had common ground between myself and the people that were explaining it to me. And I hope there's some common ground that we might have. Have you ever heard that internal voice? Fault. Out. What do you do about that? The gospel addresses that. It's a gospel of the forgiveness of sins. Paul's very clear that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In fact, that's Jesus that says it to Paul. It's on Jesus' heart, it's on God's heart that there should be a solution to your sin problem, the fault that you've committed. In, in not living the way according to God's perfect holy standard who grounds truth. So that might be how it works out in our lives to some extent. We begin to understand what this gospel is all about. And as I heard the gospel for the kind of the hundreds, the thousands of time, I began to, understand, to hear it with understanding because I, I knew I was at fault. I knew my life was out. And that gave me a problem. And the gospel began to address it. We could talk about all kinds of other things, about love and truth and beauty and suffering and consciousness and life and uh, even and there's loads of things that I think we could perhaps begin to find common ground if we were having a face-to-face -face conversation. I'll just give you one example. I don't know if it's in the, in the book. Oh, it is still in the bookshop. You can pick up, I've got a book, a book called The God Puzzle. And in it, I just try to, to, to highlight all these areas of common ground that different ones of us might share. We might not, you might not believe in God at the moment, but there's a context in which we can begin to have that discussion. And many of them are increasingly getting hidden and covered over and camouflaged, but they're still there if you think about it and stir them up and examine them. So I encourage you to take a look at that. You can actually go on, on the web, web internet and get it all for free. But um, uh, I've, yeah. 
So just, that's just the second thing that Paul does. He establishes some common ground, looks for an opening, establishes some common ground. But what's the next thing that he says? Because this is all a bit quite subjective, isn't it? It's all a bit kind of feeling. It's all a bit in here, which is really important. I mean, in fact, we know more about what's in here than we do out there often. Um, we do well out there, and often we tend to focus on here, but actually we need to pay attention in here as well and in here. And so philosophy will think rationally and carefully in an ordered way, in a coherent way about what's in here. But also we need to think coherently about what's out there. And so Paul brings it to an historical situation, an event that took place for all to see. He starts to take it to the heart of Christianity. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And if I had a few minutes to persuade you the truth of Christianity, I would begin to talk about, did Jesus rise from the dead? We've talked about in here, and maybe you can begin to relate to some of those things. Now we're talking out there, things that are objective, that we can all see, that we can all investigate. Remember, Festus had introduced Paul to Agrippa in Acts chapter 5, saying that the Jews had certain points of dispute with him about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. This was, the, this was Paul's gospel. Jesus has risen and implications for who he was and for us. This is the central question of Christianity. Did Jesus rise from the dead? So in a short time, I wanted, would want to touch on that. I would want to begin to point you in the direction that this is reasonable. Paul says to Agrippa, none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. I think it might be Festus. He said, look, this is, this is out there. Let's talk about the things that are out there. If I was doing it, I'd point to the documents that we have plausibly written within the lifetime of the witnesses, incredibly accurately transmitted to us. And you can, you can see that in the manuscripts that we have. We even have some second century fragments of these documents about an event that took place uh, in the first century. Plus, we have Paul's letters written even earlier. We have New Testament scholars who aren't Christians that we can go to, historians that aren't Christians, that haven't made that kind of step of faith yet, but are looking at the same data as we are. Paula Fredrickson, who's not a Christian herself, expresses a view that is common among New Testament scholars and historians. In carefully chosen words, she says this about the first Christians. She says, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attests to, that, to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian that they must have seen something. She's saying, if you look at the evidence we have, which is a huge amount, even taking this as historical documents, she's saying, if you look at the evidence, there is a resurrection-shaped footprint in history. It looks for all the world just like Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that doesn't give you kind of complete certainty and proof from a historical basis. In fact, it's very difficult, even in science, to get complete proof. We're reasoning from inference. But nevertheless, there is this footprint and if I was having a little bit of time to talk with you and to talk about the, persuade you that Christianity is true, I would take you there. I would say, look at this footprint. 
Look at the documents that we have. Begin to read them. Begin to, to think about what did the early disciples see? They said, we all know, they said they saw Jesus. Paul said, we'll listen to his testimony in a moment, he said he saw Jesus. And they were prepared to die for that. They went to their death saying, we saw the risen Jesus. Now, what are you going to do with that? I would gently um, put before you, if I was asking you to consider the truth of Christianity and persuade you to become a Christian. I realize there's lots of discussions that can be had around that, and there's a huge volume of literature, but I'm just pointing you in the direction this is reasonable and rational. It's reasonable and rational and true to say Jesus existed. He was reported to have taught and performed miracles, that he died by crucifixion, after which some of his friends and some of his enemies say they saw him. In fact, they were so sure of it, they were prepared to die for the truth of it. And actually, at the time, many closest to the events believed them too and were persuaded to become Christians. There's good evidence here, I believe, and I'd point you in that direction. But finally, as I kind of uh, come to a close here, and it's just been wonderful to hear so much of this this morning. What did Paul do? What, in fact, is most of this passage dedicated to? He gives his story. Did you hear Emily earlier? She wants to share her story with us. That's what Paul does. He shares his story. He has an opportunity to speak. He finds common ground. He zeroes in on the resurrection. And then he talks about his personal experience. He talks about what his life was before. Very clearly, doesn't he? Persecuting the church. Killing Christians. He talked about his encounter with Jesus. He saw this light from heaven. It wasn't just a, a kind of vi a, a vision in here. Everybody else fell to the ground. They saw something. It was in clearer focus for him. He heard words and he heard what Jesus said to him. But he encountered Jesus. And then afterwards, he talked about what happens. He says, I'm standing right here because of that. My life has changed. I'm no longer persecuting the church. I am being persecuted for building the church. So again, we have the benefit of his, of his testimony, of his story, but we have our own story. And it made me think, if I had a few minutes just to share, I would say something about my story, even as others have done today. I would say that I wasn't always a Christian, that I didn't always believe that Jesus was who he said he was. I didn't always believe in God. In fact, I didn't believe there was anything that was true. If you'd oppressed me, I'd have said... It's none, I don't know what, anything that's true. I can't put my finger on anything that's true. And even that, I, have no, well, I don't know. That's where I began. I was reasonably happy, although there were fears and difficulties in my life, but I was reasonably happy. I was living for a medium amount of pleasure, power, and achievement. I wasn't aiming for the, you know, the sky, but just a, a modicum of that would be very nice in my life. I felt, certainly as a young man, that would, that would, that would do it. I considered myself reasonably good. As I say, relatively good to other people. I think, yeah, I'm a good person. I would have, I would have said that. I argued against Christianity, but I, I, I wasn't a Paul. I did it in a nice way over biscuits and stuff like that. And uh, I, just, I loved talking to Christians. They were lovely people. And it seemed to me an easy target, but there was something about it. I was drawn to it. I was, even though I was criticizing, and I was picking holes in it. I was feeling myself clever in terms of what I was doing. Nevertheless, uh, I didn't believe it. So I couldn't believe it. I can't believe something I don't think is true. But then I've spoken about my moral failure began to be apparent to me, like peeling back the veneer of my life and being shocked, suddenly realizing with horror the things I've done are actually fault out over the line. What am I going to do about that? But at the same time, I began to realize that life is pointless without God. I was making up meaning. I had the privilege of really being able to get out of bed in the morning and do exactly what I wanted every day. 
And just like having an enormous amount of money, you begin to realize the emptiness of that. I can make up the meaning of my life and do whatever I like. And one day, on the, I think it was on the way to Sainsbury's, it hit me. You can't make up meaning. You can't just make up the meaning of your life. There has to be a context and a basis in which, which confers meaning to my life. And as I began to think it through, well, that must be God. The one who created me, the one who is eternal, and the one who will live forever. He's the only one that can, and, that can give context and meaning to my life. And these things began to come together. And therefore, I, when I heard the gospel, it began to make sense. Do you see? It was, a, it was a context in which I was hearing it. Maybe today you were hearing it in context. Ah, begin to see some of these points. Maybe for you it's other points that would make connections and as friends share with you or you hear other things, that would make the connection. But maybe some of these things are beginning to make sense. It was my sin, my moral failure, and my lack of, of objective meaning in my life. I began to look to God and hear the gospel with fresh ears. Truth was something I didn't understand, but trust was something I did all the time. I remember thinking, well, I sit on chairs, even though I wouldn't necessarily know if they were true or not. I sit on chairs. I will trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin, and that I will come into an eternal relationship with God for which my life was made and in which the meaning of my life is found. That's what I did. And actually, I, kind of just, I, I prayed a prayer, and I'll show you that in a moment. I found my life. I didn't actually encounter Jesus as a, as a light in the sky. I wasn't knocked off my horse. It was a very simple, quiet moment. But my life began to change from the inside out. I, I, I remember looking at it and going, that's odd. I talked to a friend who'd become a Christian around the same time. We both agreed, this is very odd. I'm changing my desires and my, my wishes are changing from the inside out. There's no, no one's forcing me on the outside to live differently. I'm kind of wanting to. And there's a battle going on as well. I'm a, kind of like a big, new life is coming, but the, the old is still there. And wonderfully, over the years, I didn't hear God as a voice. I was expecting to hear him turn up and say, wow, you've put your trust in me. That's fantastic. Now, here I am. Like, a bit like Paul in some ways. I had none of that. It was just gradually trusting him over the years, beginning to discern his voice, the quiet, still voice. And most especially... What was happening through all of that time, though I didn't know it, is that it wasn't philosophy that was changing my heart. It, it wasn't history and uh, me being a great historian that was working out all these things that were going on. It wasn't even, it wasn't even kind of the wonderful people around me that shared their testimonies so helpfully. At core, what was happening was the Word of God was having its way with me as it was communicated to me. God's Word is living and active. It is the power of salvation for those who believe. And it was God's Word that I was hearing through my friends. It was God's Word that was working in my heart. And it was God's Spirit that was stirring me and bringing me to new life through my investigation, through the testimony of, of friends, through all these kind of things. It was God who was doing it. And I came to realize that my faith is not based on any of these things. It's based upon, the same as where Paul goes, do you believe the promises of God? Do you believe what God has said? And now, you can stand on solid ground because it's based on what God has said. So that's what faith is. It's in response to the word of God. And I couldn't articulate all those things in those early days, but now I look back, I can see what was happening. And that's just something in my testimony. I'm sorry, I haven't got a watch, so uh, I have no idea. It just fell off the other day. I, I don't know if that was, uh, that was meant to happen. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm coming to land now. Oh, there it is. Thanks, thanks so much. Okay, we're, we're coming to land. So actually, the band would like to come back. I, I want to I say to you if, you, if you have been persuaded, even in such short time, because it's possible, and maybe this is the culmination of a lot that God has been doing in your life, if you have been persuaded, and, and, and in fact, all the things that you've heard this morning, 
the testimony from different people, the illustrations that have been brought, none of which has been planned. It's just God's... Well, I've, I've planned this a little bit. I spent a bit of time... I was up at Lincoln Cathedral the other day, kind of having a, th- a little bit of a think. But it's, none, it's God's been speaking. He's reaching out to you. He's making his appeal through, through us. And even in such a short time, maybe you've been persuaded. Maybe, if, if that's the case, you want to just express that to God. You can do that on your own. You can do it later on. You can do it with somebody else. You can, you can do it even now. You can say to God, Lord God, just like Paul recognized Jesus God, Lord God, I am so sorry for the things that I've done wrong. Even now, maybe you're saying that in your heart to God. No one's aware. No one knows around you. There's no pressure. Lord, I, I, I can see that I've done things that are wrong. I can see that's a problem. I can see I've been living for myself and that's sin. And maybe in your heart, now or later or with somebody else, you want to say, I turn from that. I repent, the Bible calls it, but I turn from that. I'm not going to live that way any, any longer. And I turn not to my own strength, but to faith in Jesus. I want to trust in Jesus. Maybe there are some even this morning that are saying that right now. I turn from my sin and I trust in Jesus that his life and his death and his resurrection counts for me. And now I'm in Christ, a new creation, pieced together, the gold running through the cracks, even of the things that I've done wrong. He's put you together anew in Christ. If that's the case, whether now or later on, then I would encourage you to say, Lord, I thank you for your forgiveness of me. Maybe even right now you're receiving for the first time the forgiveness of your sin. Cleansed from a dirty conscience. You you don't have to hear anymore, out, 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 fault, fault, fault. You don't. What do you hear instead? My son, my daughter, I love you. I care about you. Come to me. I've made a way. You're my family. You're a child of God. Chosen, dearly loved, forgiven. That's... That's what you hear suddenly. Not fault, out, loved, chosen. Oh, come to me. Isn't that wonderful? Why don't we stand together? If you've made that, if you've kind of responding like that either now or later on or with friends or whenever, it doesn't need to be in a particular place or a particular time. It, it's just that it's in here and it's genuine and it's, and it's what God has begun to do in you. Once you've done that, then I encourage you. We would love to have a conversation about baptism. Because that's, that's pretty much the first thing that a Christian does. That's pretty much kind of, one of the, that's what a Christian does. A Christian gets baptized to express and we can all share, to display what's happened on the inside. We can all see it on the outside, what's happened. It's a wonderful picture. And if you have you've said to God, oh, I turn from my sin to faith in Jesus and I know I'm forgiven because of what he's done and I know the love of God now, in fact, I'm going to pray, and do come and talk to us about baptism. I want to pray for all of us right now that we would be filled with the Spirit of God. Why don't we look to him right now, wherever we are, whether you've been a Christian a few seconds or a few years, decades. Just open your heart to God. Maybe if you don't know Jesus, you can be thinking about these things. Does that make sense? Are these true and rational words? That, maybe, it was, maybe it didn't make any sense to you right now. That's fine. Maybe, maybe it's something for you to think about. Maybe you have just committed your life to the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray, would you fill us with your spirit right now? Lord, on the meaning of our life is that we would walk with you, not as a distant God, but present in us. God, thank you for your presence amongst your people right now. 
I pray you would pour out such a wonderful knowledge of your love upon us. There would be no doubt. Seal us. Fill us with the Spirit of God to know this grace that we've heard about. To know this grace that we've been sharing about. That it would be ours. And we'd be able to appropriate it for ourselves and share it with others. Fill us, God, with the knowledge of your love. And I'll finish on this. Lord, as we live for you, would you open the doors? Would you open the doors of opportunity? Would we hear, perhaps more often than we do, I'd like to hear a bit more about that. Permission to speak. You make it, tell me a bit more. Make a defense. God, we long for those moments. Help us to live, setting aside in our heart, Jesus is Lord, that that would happen more and more. Fill us full of your spirit to empower us to do so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.